You're listening to the Exit Coach Radio Network. Welcome to the Business Sustainability Radio Show, where you'll not only learn how to create a sustainable business, but you'll also learn the secrets of creating extraordinary value within your business and within your life. It's all about creating great outcomes. Now, here's your host, certified financial planner, entrepreneur, and writer, reader, and thinker, Josh Patrick. And now we're time for our second guest. Tom Deans is one of my favorite people, and he's one of the, my favorite people the way he thinks. He's written two fabulous books, and today we're going to talk about his book, Willing Wisdom, his newest book, and one that I think anybody listening today should really pay a lot of attention to. Hello, Tom. How are you today? Josh, I'm very well. How are you? I'm great, thank you. So tell me, what's Willing Wisdom all about, and how did you end up writing it in the first place? Well, Josh, I think, uh, you know, anyone who writes a book is trying to convince themselves of an idea, uh, not the readers. And I and that held true with my first book, and it certainly held true with the second book. Uh, I, I, I have been both an inheritor, and I will uh, gift uh, a significant estate. And I, like anyone who has gone through that process, has, has really been really quite the, a recipient of quite an amazing gift. We come, I come from a family that has really uh, quite odd financial transparency. We we have found it in our culture to uh, not only have uh, annual family meetings, but even more regular meetings than that and bring lots of discussion and openness and transparency and kind of a Socratic approach to asking questions of our children and them of us as we age and, and kind of strip away the, the kind of secrecy around finances and personal finances and money and who will inherit how much and when and what. And that's really what Willing Wisdom is about. It's a it's a it's a book that offers seven questions to help families bring some shape and, and form to that awkward awkward conversation about money and aging and dying. So I know you want people to buy the book, but uh, what would you think the most important question out of the seven people need to answer? I think it. Uh, you know, I think it's. Uh, Oddly enough, I think it's the last question. It, it's really a question that deals with last wishes, which on the surface doesn't look like a money question, but it, and it's not. But it is, it is a question that, you know, that I think most families avoid. We know that 137 million American adults have no will. They have no legal will. So we know that in the absence of a will, there is really uh, lots of ambiguity around uh, how someone's life will be celebrated. So in our family meetings, we deal with this head on. We have copies of our parents' wills. They have copies of ours. There's nothing that says I'm going to, you know, uh, not predecease my parents. So we, there's lots of sharing of our legal documents so that everyone kind of knows wh- who we, who the executors are, who will be a, uh, you know, in in that position to to weigh in and execute our wishes around our last wishes and how we want our lives celebrated. It is unbelievable how families will tear themselves apart trying to figure out, in the absence of a will, how mom and dad's life should be celebrated. It seems basic. It is often not the expensive family assets that divide family and and sibling relationships after mom and dad die. It's often emotional subjects like funerals and how last wishes are, are celebrated. So has your family delineated how you guys are going to do funerals and memorial services and end-of-life issues? Well, we have in great detail. Um, And, you know, 
as I've taken this book on the road and 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 worked with you know either keynotes or working with individual families typically significant families it is absolutely amazing you figure that billionaires have this stuff buttoned down it is unbelievable in fact i would argue that the the more wealth and assets that a family has accumulated accumulated the more distance they've put between their family and the relationships around subjects like last wishes or advanced healthcare directives how how mom and dad want to be treated by healthcare professionals as they're aging and as they're losing control so again, you know, you'd think that estate plans, the more wealth you have, the better plan you can buy, the better advisor you can buy. I think it's quite the opposite. And we only have to look at some of the great kind of figures in history, people like Bobby Kennedy, who, you know, when he takes a bullet for his country in 1968, is assassinated in Los Angeles. You know, good news, he's got a will. Bad news, he's got he's got his brother, John, as the executor of, of that will, who was, of course, assassinated in 1963. So the rich, the famous, the powerful are prone to making some of the biggest uh, mistakes in estate planning. It's a great lesson for all of us. If you can't buy these plans, we all have to work on them with our family, in relationship, in conversation, today while we're thinking clearly. So this is interesting. You think that the more money somebody has, often the, the less they talk to their family. Why do you think that's true? Well, I think... You know, we know from the data that people who amass significant wealth are typically business owners. And the first rule of business is about control, right? So when you're the majority shareholder, whether you're a founder or not, if you're the controlling shareholder, you get to exercise control. That is what we learn, and that is what teaches us about, you know, how to accumulate wealth. That very principle is often what creates great problems in estate plans, particularly as we age. We seem to think that control is at the center of the great estate plans, when in fact it's actually the relinquishing of control. So often the people who don't have much wealth, who have never had a culture of exercising control, actually find giving up control pretty easy. So, you know, know, the act of aging and dying is the ultimate loss of control. It's where we rely on those which we forge deep relationships on trust and respect. Those folks have great deaths. It's familiar, this idea of relinquishing control. So it's the great business owners who have amassed great, great fortunes that are the, the notion of control is, is, is ambivalent. So for the people who are listening and might recognize that when we're talking about have to be control, think of themselves, what kind of advice would you give them? You know, the great, the great patriarchs and matriarchs, and, and I use those words knowing that many listeners will be unfamiliar with it. We have a clear sense of what that means. We've lost a cultural familiarity of what it means to be a great patriarch and, 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 and matriarch. The great ones, the ones who have really led their generation to become an even greater dynastic family, have something in the family culture that gives them a signal at a point in time to create space around them for their progeny, especially their progeny, to not become just as good as them, but in fact, they take it upon themselves to make their progeny even better. And there's a graciousness and humility that drives this kind of wisdom. And what they are teaching and preparing their heirs is has something to do that transcends money. It is about ideas and, and, and creating a sense of children being whole and true to themselves to pursue that which is real to them. And in many cases, that is 
different than running, say, the same family business. It means it means being, as I said, real, and sometimes that means taking a family in a different direction and taking different kinds of risk with family money. When we, as patriarchs and matriarchs, take away that space and suck all the oxygen out of the room because of our own great, greatness and magnificence, we, we get the kind of family and legacies we deserve which are ones that collapse under the burden of trying to replicate what has already been. So what you're saying, or at least what I'm hearing you say, is you really have to let the next generation take their own path and having that conversation make a richer life. I, I think so, and I think that that seems pretty straightforward, but that being informed by a matriarch or patriarch that shares just not only the wisdom of life lessons that have gone well for the family, but the hard part where someone, a, a family leader, has pulled up significantly short or has made a serious mistake. Those are the greatest gifts of all. Those mm -hmm. are the, the, the pearls of wisdom that helps the next generation avoid the same mistakes and be, to become better. I mean, that's what I alluded to earlier. It's those kinds of gifts, which had nothing to do with money or uh, or clever tax plans or legal structures, but everything to do with, as I said, a culture of of learning and a culture of teaching and hoping for more and hoping for someone, quite frankly, to continue your work and take it in a different direction. So, Tom, how would you get that conversation started? It seems to be pretty challenging to me. Well, I think it is hard, and this is where I have great hope in the world of advisors, particularly sophisticated advisors, and, and you know who who come to family. First of all, who hold family meetings? If families, the idea of a family meeting is is not a natural one to a family. To bring that imperative to hold a family meeting, to resource a family meeting as an advisors, advisors, to bring the kinds of questions that start these conversations, to bring transparency. That is huge. I think this is just such a cultural, culturally difficult conversation to start that I, I just see the role of advisor. And by the way, Josh, I'm not an advisor. I don't do that work. But there are thousands of qualified people like yourself that can do that kind of work, that can start those conversations and shape those conversations and bring an intergenerational view of wealth management. I think family has always been at the center of wealth management. It is not about getting 12% return on invested capital. It is about getting a good return on your invested money, but also wrapping some purpose around that surplus wealth on death so that it releases potential in the next generation. Who's starting that conversation? It's not families. It's advisors, the best advisors. So what advice would you give to an advisor on how to broach this subject if they feel uncomfortable doing so? Well, I think the best way to do it is to talk about their own experience. And I got to tell you, Josh, I was speaking in Chicago not long ago, about six weeks ago, and I had a room full of financial advisors, and half the room of the, of the advisors in that room did not have a will themselves. So they are incapable of drawing upon their own narrative to share their own difficulties in, in, in starting these conversations with their own family. They can't relate to their clients because they haven't done their own work. So this is, this is absolutely crucial. Advisors need to share their own personal struggles 
in starting these family conversations around money and aging and dying. That's where they gain trust and respect and credibility. So what you're saying is first advisors better get themselves a will and all the other stuff that goes along with it. And second, they really need to be having their own family conversations. Well, absolutely. And and to go the next step, which is the controversial part of, you know, the book, and, and that is that it's not just enough to write a will. It's it's really all about reaching out and writing the will collaboratively with your intended beneficiaries. I, I don't understand how we can write wills without seeking the knowledge and wisdom from our recipients, our intended beneficiaries. It makes no sense to me why we hoard our wisdom and, and, and our decisions and leave it to when we're dead and our beneficiaries finding out what happens, how it goes down in some austere lawyer's office when people have lots of questions and, and these conversations are irretrievable. The person's dead. So I, it, it's, all, it's not just enough to write the will. It's about collaborating on the will and sharing the contents of it while you're thinking clearly. Interesting. So something which I find interesting, you might have an idea about. Mom and dad write a will. They bring their kids in to have a conversation. And the kids kind of shake their heads yes with what mom and dad are saying. But you know the kids really are not in favor or agree with what mom and dad are doing. How do you bring this stuff out and have a, a positive conversation about that? Well, you know, all I can talk about is our own experience. We use a series of questions in our own family loosely, sometimes more formally. And and I should make the point right now, Josh, that some of our best family meetings aren't in oak paneled boardrooms with you know people wearing suits and ties with our lawyers and you know everyone and our accountants and all of our advisors present. Some of the best family meetings we have are around a campfire at the cottage. You know, they're informal. We have someone saying, you know, I want to bring everyone up to date, uh, but before, you know, I want to talk about my will, I have a couple of questions. I mean, you know, hey, kids, how do you think I earn my money? How do you think we've come to be, you know, where we are with our finances? And listen to how kids respond. Seek their ideas. Ask them what they would do with their inheritance. Ask them how much money they need to satisfy their material wants. Ask them about their philanthropic desires. Find alignment. Find areas where there's disagreement. Explore both of them. You know, it's not about, you know, everyone nodding their head and come by awe. This is hard, difficult stuff. But let me add some perspective, Josh. There are worse problems in this world than dividing wealth. These are the kind of problems we want and need. These are awesome problems. So often we lose perspective. And again, I would turn to the advisors to bring that perspective to families who are talking about this stuff. And if kids are ill-prepared, and I've met them, I've met kids who, you know, if they inherit, you know, $100,000, they'll be dead in 30 days because of their addiction. So why not explore that and find out what kind of, you know, instruments, financial products and structures are in place to leave wealth that will release potential when children are healthy if they become healthy. Similarly, I've seen kids inherit $100 million and turn it into a billion dollars because, quite frankly, they're smarter and harder working than dad. And there you have it, the two ends, the two ends and extremes of the continuum. But aren't we curious and shouldn't we be curious about what we have in our own family? Do we have that kid that has an addiction where money will release uh, you know, um, a destructive force? Or do we have kids that where, where wealth will release potential? I, I, I'm curious, and I think it's always moving, and I think it's dynamic. I would agree with that 100%. So most advisors 
probably don't have the skills to have this deep, deep conversation. What would you recommend to them? There are dozens and dozens of books on on the transition of family wealth, but it, it is really I you know you can make this an academic discussion or you can make it experiential. And I think you, the real takeaway here is advisors don't ask your clients to do anything you're not prepared to do yourself. Go through this this you know process of discussing with your own family the issues that your clients may have more wealth. There are more zeros, same issues, same spin on the same issues. We are all concerned about our children learning about how much wealth we have. But I can tell you right now, our kids are, uh, we have two kids uh, in college. Uh, they're, they're almost in their last years of college. Both our kids know, they have copies of our will, and both know exactly what our personal net worth is. They know our advisor. Our advisor is their advisor, and my advisor is my father's advisor, we bring a kind of an intergenerational view of our wealth, and our advisors have a complete holistic intergenerational view of how our money was earned, which, by the way, was very slowly with taking lots of risks, and it was never a straight line up. And that's important to our family that someone, our advisors, have a kind of long historical view of our wealth. I think our advisors are the keepers of our family stories, and we count on them to tell those stories going forward. So we have about two minutes left, Tom. And what would be your number one piece of advice that you would give a a family about their wills? It would be that don't try to write the perfect will and don't view it as a static document. It is a living document. It is a document that can be changed. It is a document that almost certainly should be changed. Uh, I I view, along with my wife, our wills every year, and, and there is almost not a year that goes by where something doesn't change, either our financial situation. I've had my brother in and out of my will a couple of times, not because my relationship has changed with him. He's moved. He, he moved to uh, to the U.S. He moved back to Canada. So as a guardian, uh, that decision changes with his with his location. It is unbelievable how much can change in a year. Material changes to people's uh, situation that has to be reflected in the will. And I can tell you that in the absence of that, when executors have predeceased, uh, you know, the person writing the will, or if they're becoming incapacitated, we often pick executors who are much older than us. They often die or become incapacitated themselves. We have to keep these documents current. So my number one uh, urging would be to review the will. Don't view it as a morose, depressing document. Viewed as a document, the most important written word that you leave behind that informs people about what you really believed and thought about the relationship and about your hope for humanity. So, Tom, if uh, somebody wanted to find your book, how would they go about doing that? It is as easy as clicking on www.willingwisdom.com. Well, that's pretty great. So we're at the end of our time. And I thank you so much for talking with us today. As always, it was fascinating stuff. Josh, the pleasure was mine. Thank you. You're listening to one of many shows on ExitCoachRadio.com. We're interviewing advisors, authors, and thought leaders for their best tips, ideas, and precautions so you can be well-planned. If you'd like to be a guest on any of our shows, go to guest.exitcoachradio.com. ExitCoachRadio.com. Come listen for a minute.